Hey, thanks for tuning in. This is TJ Murphy, and welcome to another episode of Adventurous Entrepreneurs. My guest today is Jeff Greenfield. Jeff is the co-founder and CEO of Provolytics, a pioneer of attribution in the digital age. With three decades of experience, he excels in strategy and technology-driven marketing. As the former COO and co-founder of C3 Metrics, he collaborated with giants like JP Morgan, Nestle, and Fender. Jeff is a thought leader who's been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg, just to name a few, and is a sought-after speaker at global conferences like NAB, Media Post, and ANA. In a candid revelation, Jeff shares his post-exit journey from C3 Metrics back in 2019, wherein he navigated uncharted waters, even joining the traditional workforce for the first time at age 55. This was just a short stint before starting his next venture, Provolytics, which was born amidst some self-doubt, underscoring the perennial entrepreneurial lesson to trust oneself even when stepping into the arena after a hiatus. Just a few of the golden takeaways Jeff shares in this episode are the importance of emotional intelligence in leadership, the transformative power of vulnerability in communication, and practical steps to foster team resilience. So without further ado, this is me and Jeff Greenfield. Welcome to the Adventurous Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Murphy. Since quitting my corporate nine to five and starting a business while backpacking through Asia back in early 2017, I've had the privilege of learning from some incredibly adventurous entrepreneurs. Through these conversations and my own journey, I've learned that much like in life, entrepreneurship is an adventure. On this podcast, I explore the journeys of top performing leaders in their fields. These wide ranging conversations include tactical business advice, how I built this insights, lessons in leadership, life hacks, travel stories, favorite hobbies, and insights into living a purposeful and joy-filled life. Adventures await us, so let's dive in. Hey, hey, Jeff. Welcome to Adventurous Entrepreneurs. Hey, TJ. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's great to have you here. Great to have you here, buddy. So I'd love to start with a bit of background on your journey. You exited your former company, C3 Metrics, back in 2019 after over a decade of scaling the business. And before we started recording, you were telling me a bit about how that was a difficult time for you, you know, dealing with a change in identity almost. But ultimately, you found your next pursuit and decided to start your current company, Provolytics. Can you share what that experience was like jumping back into the startup world after over a decade, 12 years of you know, exiting your first company? Yeah, it was uh, it was scary as hell, TJ. It really was because when I exited C three, I did I did have an identity crisis. You know, I had been running this company, I'd built it up, and then all of a sudden, like, I you know, I didn't have a title, I didn't have a company that I was associated with, although it was my company and I was the co-founder there. It you know what you always want to do when you're an entrepreneur is you want the company to become kind of its own entity, if you will, and so I was. I was a person without an identity. And I went back to doing some coding, uh, started building out uh, a solution that I thought would be very cool. And then a friend of mine who's a CEO of a, of a much, much larger company, a 600 person company reached out uh, because he wanted to build out a new division that was focused on advertising. And, and he essentially recruited me over the course of six months. We had a series of conversations about every other week. And and after like about two months, I, I said to my wife, I said, I think he wants to offer me a job. And 
I, I had never worked for anyone my entire life, ever. I've always worked for myself. And, you know, my wife's like, well, why don't you try it? This could be interesting for you. You've always built teams. This will be an interesting experience for you to be kind of on the inside track. And so at 55, I took my first job. Wow. Uh, and it was it was pretty cool. Like I got to learn a lot of interesting things, you know, because being on the outside selling into a company, you always have these assumptions. Like, you know, I used to always assume that most of the decisions that people made, it was like 50-50. Half the decisions were made in the interest of the company and the other half were made in their own interest. And people tend to build moats around themselves because the benefits and everything are so good. And I actually got to see that. And I actually even started to experience it because for the first time ever, I got to learn at 55 what a weekend was because I had never <laughs> experienced a weekend. Right. Because, you know, when you're running a business, you're always on 24 seven. And the more, totally. the larger your team is, the more problems come up, the more personal issues that people have. And you're, you're, you're always on call. And, but it was really cool for me to like on a Friday night, or to be honest, a Friday afternoon to shut down my laptop, turn off my company phone and just kind of relax over the weekend. Uh, but what I found though, is that since I was part of the leadership team, about 80% of the work I did was meetings. And I wasn't actually doing anything. I was just sitting there listening, grunting occasionally, agreeing or disagreeing. And but that wasn't me. I, I like to do stuff. And so after about a year, year and a half, I decided to leave because I started to see a shift that was going on in my former industry. Now, I, I, I kind of swore I was never going to go back to measurement. I spent about a dozen years in it. <laughs> but I started to see like this backwards trend, uh, which was amazing to me. I started to see people talking about these amazing new companies that were out there that were doing things with these magic pixels. So I said to my wife, I'm going to I'm going to get demos from all these companies and I'm either going to invest or be an advisor for the best one and make a huge bet on it because I know this space and I got demos and each time I got off a demo I was more and more disappointed because they just couldn't see the direction that this industry was heading and so I saw an opportunity there and then I saw the upcoming shift over that's now already happened between GA and GA4 and I saw this massive disruption that was coming to the measurement and the and to the targeting space. And I said, "Well, I, I gotta I gotta do this again." But but when I decided to do it, I was like gun ho about it. I was like, "This is it. This is gonna be exciting." And then I realized that I had not started up a new company since about 2007, 2008. And the muscles that I had been using in 2019 when I left the company were completely different than the ones. When I started it up, so I had a, you know a, a, a bit of a time there of some doubts, like can I actually do this? Am I too old to do this? Have I forgotten all of these things that I had? And then my wife assured me that it's just like muscle memory; you just got to get in the zone, and it'll come back. And of course, she was absolutely right. But you know, it's still kind of scary to jump back in again. I bet. I want to go back to when you were employed for that year, was there anything that you learned being on the other side that actually benefited you when you jumped back into the startup world? Well, what I learned is that I was, since at, at the level that I was at in the company, I was involved in a lot of acquisition calls. Okay. Uh, 
And so I was involved with a bunch of due diligence that we did on several companies. And so I was able to see the inside baseball that goes on. Uh, and I, so it was, it was, that to me was fascinating to be on the other side of things and the concept of, you know, just how you have to build consensus internally. And mm -hmm. a lot of the work that I was doing for some of the acquisitions that I was working on was getting other team members either behind me or team members who were for it when I decided that this was not going to work out to kind of talk them down, you know, the path of showing them that this wasn't going to work out well. And so it was fascinating being on that side of things to see what actually goes on. I can imagine. Yeah. So you, you alluded to it, but I mean, as marketers, we're living in a time of the most massive change since the birth of digital marketing in the early 2000s. We've become accustomed as marketers to having massive amounts of data and insights at our fingertips to be able to measure and improve the performance of our campaigns, report to our stakeholders, our clients, whatever the case may be. But that's not even just about to shift, it's already shifting very dramatically. And there will be less and less of it over the next couple of years with the collapse of the cookie, all of the big changes that are happening because of privacy concerns, GA to GA4, there's, there's so many things, iOS. So I would love to hear from someone with a wealth of experience. I like to nerd out on data myself. So this is kind of a scary moment in time. And I'd love to see like, what, why do you think data is becoming more scarce and, and things are going to be harder to track, first of all? And second, what do you believe are the skills and, and the techniques that companies, marketers, anyone that relies on data will need to learn in order to target and measure ROI effectively in this new landscape we're in? Yeah, so I mean... The big reason it's happening, or at least the excuse that's being given as to what's going on is privacy. And it all kind of starts with GDPR uh, in, the, in the EU, where there were a lot of companies that were operating here in the US and in the EU. And the big difference from a privacy standpoint of view over there was that you know everyone knows the concept that someone has to opt in. But in the US, we have like these spam laws that kind of say, hey, you can pretty much email anyone as long as you have your mailing address and as long as you offer an opportunity for someone to opt out. Uh, and as long as you respect it, then things are fine. And that's kind of been the lay of the land for since the birth of digital, even over in the EU. But all of a sudden with GDPR, things changed. And what really changed is they said, hey, you know that list that you've got? Well, throw it out. It's no good. People have to opt in in order for you to message them. And there's all these new rules that they have a right to ask you for every bit of data that you have on them. They have a right to edit it and they have a right to ask you to completely delete it. And you just can't email people. People actually have to opt in. So there were a lot of companies that were in ad tech, especially a lot of the, uh, the cross device companies, companies that would connect users across like their iPhone their desktop and their work computer yeah. that were over there that with GDPR, they just said, this is too complicated. Our business is all data. We built it up. We're exiting the EU and they just left. And so that kind of filtered across to our side of the pond. And now we've got all these regulations in place. The biggest one right now is the CCPA in California, which is a, it's people don't have to opt in, but you have to have all these regulations and there's all these fines. 
They just fined, uh, and, and I think the fines just started the beginning of July of this year. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start to see some of those. And so what ends up occurring is when you start to see these privacy regulations that come out, the larger companies start to think about how can we shape and shift things around that will work within our business model and will also potentially benefit us in the long run. Uh, And so that's what you've seen happening. Uh, You know, a number of years ago, there was that concept of walled gardens when we first had Facebook and Facebook wouldn't really talk to Google and vice versa. Now we've got Google, we've got Facebook, we've got Snap, TikTok, we've also got Walmart, we've got Amazon. They, They now have ways in which you can get your data in there through clean rooms and stuff but it's primarily for large advertisers. Uh, So for most smaller to medium-sized advertisers, you're kind of stuck in terms of the amount of data. And it used to be that you could at least collect all of the data when somebody visited your website. You would absolutely positively know where they clicked from. You would know absolutely where they were located at. And the way you could do that is because of their IP address. Well, one of the things that's just changed with one of the more recent iOS updates is a lot of people that are running the uh, the iOS relay, it's hiding their IP address. So you don't even know where people are coming from geographically in the US. And so the next thing that's gonna happen after the cookies are gone is that they will probably start to hide IP addresses. So you'll know if someone's in Google Chrome when they clicked over where they came from. But if they're using an iOS device, we're not sure yet if Safari is gonna strip out some of those UTM parameters. And I was talking with someone earlier today, like, do you think the UTMs are gonna go away? Are they gonna be around forever? Hmm. And I'm like, I said, UTMs are kind of a joke. And, And he was like, well, what do you mean? How is it that UTMs are jokes? I'm like, well, UTMs only work if you're in the Google universe. For Facebook, they really don't mean anything because if you're looking at Google Analytics, all you're seeing in Google Analytics for Facebook is the value of their clicks, which is very few people click through and come all the way through. The value in Facebook is the impressions that build up there. People start to think about your ad more and your business more. And so UTMs, and, and think about podcasts, there's no UTMs on podcast advertising, No UTMs on CTV. These are new channels that we're calling these no-click digital channels. So UTMs really only mean something. Well, there is UTMs in display advertising and retargeting, but everyone knows that very few people click on ads. So UTMs are really kind of useless. So if they go away, they're really really not much. And and that kind of leads into the the other question, which is what what, what do future marketers need to have? And I think you really hit on it, TJ, in terms that this is the biggest shift that we've seen since the birth of digital marketing. Anyone who's in digital marketing now, who's been in it, let's say for 10 years or 15 years, that's all they know is digital. And there's gonna be a whole retraining process that folks have to go through because we've been hyper-focused on the bottom of the funnel, which is where clicks live. And we're now moving to a world where we have to be hyper-focused on the upper part of the funnel, which is where impressions live. Yeah. And that's the whole new model, which means there's going to be some math that's involved. There's a little bit more thinking that's involved. It's a little bit more of the science aspect of media buying. There's the art. 
hey, I've done this before, I know it works. But then there's the science, which is the mathematics behind it and GA, things like triple whale and other things out there that are primarily click-based are just not going to get you there because there's so many new channels that don't play in that universe that are an important part of uh, any campaign. All right, so I wanna be a savvy marketer and this is scary, obviously. It means we've gotta learn new skills, we've gotta utilize new tools and you have a tool that can potentially help. So how does Provalytics help solve this attribution nightmare that we're all going to face taking into account all of the new privacy regulations and the collapse of the cookie and everything else? Well, Probolytics looks at things from that top of the funnel down. And it looks at it, it looks at a unifying metric. Because remember, when digital first started, everything was click-based, like I said. But now we're living in this world where we have all these channels that aren't click-based and not everybody clicks on ads. But every channel, you can get information on how much I spent for a particular day and how many impressions there were. And you can even get that breakdown by creative. Even if you're working with an influencer, you can get that information from their channel in TikTok. And on a YouTuber, you can even get that information. So, and if there's a new channel that comes out tomorrow or next month, which there will be, oh, yeah. at a minimum, you're going to know how much money you spent and how many impressions were in market. And to go back before digital, TV, radio, print, there was nothing that directly connected those ads to people walking into a store and buying. And yet marketers were able to figure out what knobs to turn, where to spend more and where to spend less in order to build massive brands. And they did it by looking at the number of impressions that were in market. Now, where it's going to be difficult for marketers that marketers are so used to this concept of deterministic data, being able to say, someone clicked here and someone bought there because I can see it in my HubSpot or my Spotify or my GA. And because of all these privacy regulations, we're moving to a world where that is no longer going to be there. And so what Provalytics does is it utilizes that impression-based data that is currently available and always will be available and merges it with a very sophisticated machine learning and AI to create essentially attribution level reporting. And what that means is, is that it gives you not just channel level, doesn't just tell you how paid search does, but also does it down at a very granular level. But it also does one other thing further because one thing that most marketers have been doing using multi-touch attribution is that we have been making bets on where to spend our next dollar based upon how things have done in the past. Like we look at last week's data and we make adjustments in our budget based upon that. But the reality is, is that that's the scientific part of the marketing is saying, okay, this was our best performer last week. It looks like there's some room to grow there with our CAC numbers. Let's throw them some more dollars and look at how they will do. But using the science of Provalytics, what we're able to do is we're able to run hundreds of thousands of simulations, essentially, telling the scientific model, hey, this is what we did. Give me my best possible outcome. And it will spit out the perfect plan based upon your constraints. And it will do all of the math and all of the work for you. And what this does is it allows marketers to put more of the art back into their marketing and leave the science 
uh, to the to the statistical models and the AI. I mean, that's this stuff is supposed to help us. We shouldn't be trying to figure things out on our own. It's kind of like when calculators first came out and people didn't want to use them. And now who could live without a calculator? So why would you do it? And the way I kind of correlate it is, you know, years ago, I was a, I was a private pilot and I got my training. And when you, when you fly a plane, the first thing you do is you, obviously you learn how the plane works and you learn how to fly under what's called VFR, visual flight rules. And you, you go up only when the weather's nice and you land, you can see the airport. But, you know, the weather's not always nice, especially on the East Coast. So you get what's called an instrument rating where you have a license to fly under IFR, instrument flight rules. And the way you train for that is you go up with an experienced pilot and you wear these things called foggles. And foggles are like sunglasses that don't allow you to look outside. And wow. all they do is they force you to only look at your instruments. And it's really strange because when you're climbing and you can't see outside and you're, you're going up in altitude, it feels like you're going down. And so what ends up happening is you pull back too fast and you can actually stall a plane. And the same is true as well. When you're descending, it feels like you're going up. So you can actually go down way too fast. So you go through hundreds of hours of training to trust the instruments. And that's what this is about is marketing has become so complicated, especially with these new changes. And you need to have instruments that you can trust and that's what Provolytics is all about. It's the instruments for the marketer to take the science out of it so that we can get back to the art of doing what we love to do, which is being creative. You piqued my curiosity. So two sides here. Like I, I own a marketing company. We work with clients all around the country. How does this tool serve you know, an agency like ours that has many accounts that we need to track and then on the flip side, if it's just a, a company wants to utilize it to track their own data, how does that look and operate for them? Great question. You know, when I built out C3 metrics back in 2008, uh, you know, no one had dashboards. There was no Domo hadn't even started yet. So we built out this great dashboard. And then all of a sudden, Domo came out, Datarama came out, Tableau started exploding their usage. Now we've got Looker Studio. And by the time I exited, about 95% of our clients uh, were getting raw data from us because they all had their own dashboards. And most agency I, I know build out dashboards and they always say you want to, if you have a service or a product you're selling into a company, you want to become part of their internal dashboards because that's where things become very sticky. So when we started building out the prototypes for Provolytics, we would push out the data and CSV files and we would create pivots in Excel because it was made to be pushed out to a dashboard. And I would tell our first series of clients, hey, I just wanna let you know we're building out dashboards. And the response I got back from every single person was, yeah, yeah, that's great. I just wanna make sure, can I get this Excel every time we get data? And so finally I started asking them, why, why is this Excel so important to you? And they're like, well, because, and, and Regardless of your role, whether you're you're on the agency side or you're whether you're the marketer in house, we all have bosses that we have to answer to, and bosses need reports. And our job with this data is to be able to tell a story. How did things look yesterday? What are we doing tomorrow? And this data is really important to that. And so what I found out is that when there's a dashboard, someone has to go and either take a screenshot or they have to export data. 
And then they have to open it up in Excel, create the pivots that they want, and then they cut and paste it into a PowerPoint to give to their boss. I mean, that's essentially, it doesn't matter the size of the company, that's what everyone is using. And I was blown away. I was like, oh my God. So the output of this are CSV files that are designed to be pivoted. And essentially right now there's just two files that come back. One is a results file. And one is essentially the projections file of what you should do next, your forecast. And the forecast is all based upon three series of constraints, which are how far out do you want to plan? Do you want to go out 30, 60, 90, 180 days? What do you want your budget to be? Do you want it to be exactly the way it was 30 days ago? Do you want budget to go up a certain percentage? Do you want it to go down? And what is your risk quotient? If you have 100% risk, you're saying to the scientific model, hey, we don't know anything. You can come up with the best possible scenario. Or you say, hey, I only want to go up or down 25%, come up with the best combination for me. And those are the two files. And then from that, there's a series of pivots where you can easily look at channel level, and then you can look at the first level hierarchy, and you can go down as deep as you want to go. And it's built out for companies to use for their internal reporting and their internal planning. And then, of course, the hardest thing is to operationalize anal analytics within an organization. I can't tell you how many companies have great analytics. They have a whole team of analytics professionals and the analytics folks talk to me and they're like, listen, we, we know what needs to be done to increase sales. How, how do we get the right people to listen to us? And that's really the key is to be able to operationalize, to be able to get people to make decisions based upon data and it's like training is an instrument rated pilot. You have to trust your instruments and you'll never have a scenario where something like probolytics will come in and immediately people will jump towards it and they'll start trusting it right away. That should never be the case. You should never trust anything hundred percent. You should have a model that outputs recommendations. And then you should look at something that you, you don't believe. Like it says, you should cut this 50% and it won't make a difference in sales. And you're like, I don't believe that one bit. And that's usually what we challenge, challenge clients on is to find something like that. And then finally, I'll say, if we cut it 5%, how long would it take you to notice? And they're like, we would notice in 10 days. So I saw, like, let's do a test, cut it let's 5%. It. So we cut it, 10 days goes by, 20, 30 days, no change whatsoever in sales. And that's when people start to scratch their head and they're like, okay, well, maybe there is something to this. And it's like, okay, now we have this extra money. Where should we put it at? Let's see what the model says. Where is the lowest hanging fruit where we can get something out of it? And then it's over a series of two to three quarters, but uh, depending upon the size of the organization to build up confidence in the model. And that's, you know, that's essentially the training that goes into it. And that's incredibly important. If you don't put the time in, to operationalize your analytics, people are going to just keep doing what they're used to doing previously. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, 100%. So I can see how this would be a game changer for larger organizations. Do you see or do you have companies on there that are, you know, smaller startups or, you know, even like locally focused companies that maybe still have a lot of different 
you know, irons in the fire from Facebook ads to Google to some programmatic to local TV and radio and all this kind of stuff. Can it still be effective for a smaller organization? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it can absolutely be effective. I mean, the key, as long as you're buying across multiple channels, if you're just in the Google universe and you're not going anywhere else, just stay with Google. Yeah, if you're, you're just, good. Are you just in Facebook? You're good. You don't have an issue. The issue is when you're trying to attribute across these different channels, that's that's really the issue. Yeah. But it's the organizations that can really, the larger ones, you know, the, it seems like the larger the organization, the more problems they have because they can only move as fast as the slowest person in the organization. It's the startups that really can move with this and especially agencies as well, where we've seen that agencies have been winning pitches historically, and this even goes back to my time at, at C3 Metrics, is what, what clients want is they want to know that you've got something special, yeah. something spectacular. You have a new way of doing things. You know, well, we've got Bruce here, and Bruce used to work at Google, and he's got the inside track. You know, that used to be what wins pitches. What we're seeing that wins pitches now is when analytics leads the pitch. When you come in and say, listen, we're completely transparent on what we do. Our decisions are made based on statistical modeling. And this model is award-winning. And we believe it, it does the best because of this, this, and this, and this. And this is how we make all of our decisions based upon this model. And we've got this and no one else has it. I mean, that's that's what wins pitches because people then have a sense where, okay, I can I can believe in them that there's there's something behind their decisions that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. All right. Well, I want to talk more data because I'm a bit of a data nerd myself. And I think this is the stuff that people like me and anybody who wants to stay ahead really needs to dig into. And you clearly know 100 times more than I do. So quick pulse check. We've talked about iOS, Meta as a whole. How is Facebook and Instagram reporting looking post iOS changes? Well, what's what's fascinating that I've seen is that, you know, people think Facebook is not doing as good mm -hmm. as it used That's to Definitely do. the consensus out there. Right. And, and the reason is because the way that most people did their analytics and their attribution is, you know... If I had a thousand sales in a day, let's say, and Facebook said they got 800 and Google said they got 800, I would give, I had some sort of haircut that I did. It didn't matter whether it was based in math or something. I'm not going to report 1600 to my boss because that would make me look like an idiot. But let's say I gave both of them a 50% haircut and that's what I always did. I cut them both in half. Well, after the iOS update, Facebook wasn't saying 800 anymore. They were now saying 600 or 500, but people are still giving it the same haircut. And so to most folks, it appears as though Meta is not performing as well as it was before. Uh, and the reality is, is that that demographic that was on Meta, they haven't left. They're, they're still there. They haven't like migrated. There's not like some new place that, uh, you know, People 50 plus in the U.S. are now spending the majority of their time. They're still there. It's not like there's some new fast channel that's come out. Yes, Netflix has had a couple of good series, but they're still on Facebook. They're definitely still on Instagram. It's just that Facebook is a little bit blind. 
and they've got that new kind of cappy server level reporting, but it's still a little bit blind as well too. So it's never going to be as good as it was before. So it's still doing just as well. The key is, is that you just can't see it. Yeah. Uh, but if you were measuring with impressions, you would be able to see it. One advantage as well of being able to measure with impressions is that you can go backwards and see how things were a year ago or two years ago or even three years ago, because all that impression data is available historically. Whereas MTA, you have to put up tags and wait for them to start collecting data. Typically at C3, it would take us about three or four months until we had enough data to start where it would be statistically relevant. But with this type of modeling, we can actually go backwards as well too. But with impressions, you actually can see that Facebook and Meta and Instagram, they're performing just as well. And who knows, you know, threads, you know, they say things are on the decline there, but it's, it's pretty impressive that Facebook overnight now has a new property to yeah. capture even more eyeballs. Yeah, I think Threads definitely not counting it out yet. I mean, the amount of growth that they saw in such a short period of time, of course, it's going to trend down a little bit. There was a lot of hype. There was a lot of anything new is going to get a lot of curiosity and right. people that created accounts, even like myself, like I was on there for a week or two. Now I'm not as you know attentive to it, but I'll still be on there. So brought up another product question related to Provolytics. We're talking about historical data and how does that all feed into your platform? You know, if I'm creating a brand new account, how do I go about bringing in that data? And are you able to sync up with these different platforms? So there's a stream of information coming in or is it all a manual upload situation? Yeah, you know, back, I keep going back to the future. Back in the day, there were not public APIs like they mm -hmm. have with Google and Facebook now. And now what's happened is, is that these APIs have become commoditized. You know, they were the first ones that came out like Supermetrics, which was very expensive for advertisers, Funnel.io as well. But, but you've started to see now there's an emergence of tons of these companies. And in fact, you can go on like even Looker Studio that has a direct connection to get your Google data right into Google Sheets. What's fascinating to me, though, is that there's still a lot of even large advertisers that don't have this data aggregated into some sort of central data warehouse. It's just a matter of, you know, putting forth the effort to have it done, but it's pretty straightforward. And I mean, I've even seen companies out there that can do this. One of my favorites lately is a company down uh, in South America called Porter Metrics, and it's literally under $100 a month. Uh, for an advertiser to bring all of their data into Google Sheets and into Looker Studio. And then from that, we can easily get a feed from there. Most of the clients that we're working with now are larger enterprise clients, and they either have that data readily available or their agencies already do through some sort of aggregator, such as a Datarama. It's already being pulled in. And so we arrange for an export. One of the things about larger companies is that their KPIs are a lot different than like an e-commerce company where it's like it's sales data. Like, you know, hey, we can grab the data from Stripe or from WooCommerce or Shopify. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of them, they have, a, they have a presence on the web with the store, but then they also have, let's say, a thousand retail outlets as well. And so they want that be able to attribute down geographically and then by product. So these are massive feeds that come in on a daily basis 
sometimes at a skew level as well too. So there is a little bit of data wrangling in the beginning and working to build out kind of a data map of what are the data feeds that are going to actually come in uh, to be able to work that out. But like I said, for most medium-sized advertisers, they, they, they should already have this data aggregated. Uh, we looked in the beginning to, to sync up and build that out, but we found most of our potential customers already had that handled on their end. And to hook up to another connector didn't seem to make much sense to them. Yeah, added work. Yes. So we talked about Meta, but what about Google? How can marketers and businesses more effectively analyze their Google Ads performance? And are there any changes in the Google Ads toolkit that you're excited about? Well, the performance Mac stuff seems to be working incredibly well for a lot of clients. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like to essentially let off the reins and let the horse run because anyone who's done horseback riding, if you just let off the reins and run <laughs> them, they're going to run right towards the barn. So yep. you have to be very careful. But uh, most of our clients seem to be doing very, very well with that. I think one of the most important things for folks to look at is that when you're spending, especially in the Google universe, most of it tends to be lower funnel. Uh, but one of the kind of the leading indicators that you want to look for is you want to look for brand growth. You want to be seeing that more and more people are actually out there looking for you. And there's three places to look for that. And there's kind of an acronym that we came up with years ago called BOSS, B-O-S. And that stands for brand search, organic, and SEO. And so you want to always be looking at your brand search. You want to be seeing that over time, more and more people are clicking on your brand search term. That's a good thing. Yeah. You also want to see that more and more people are actually searching for your brand search term. And you can look at how many impressions you're getting right in Google ads. If you're not seeing that, then that means your funnel is not really being built. And so that means you're gonna to have to keep spending more and more money. And you wanna keep spending, but what you wanna see is you wanna see that some of those dollars are actually going to the top of the funnel versus the bottom of the funnel. The other thing you wanna be looking at is that, oh, and, and the boss, the organic, which are your direct type-ins. How many people are actually just showing up to your website and directly typing it in? Because some people, when they hear about you, they'll type it in. Other people will still search you know, I mean, still the number one search term on Google is google.com. Yep. <laughs> uh, so people, people will still search your website.com and click on the first thing they, they think. I, just because we're in the ad business, we assume that people know those are ads. Trust me, most no, people they don't, don't know their ads at all. <laughs> no, they don't. Yeah. You and can ask third, my mom. She definitely yeah. has no clue what's what. So, And the third thing that the S in boss is SEO. Because as you're spending more and more, obviously you're, you're driving people to your store, to your business, but you also, if you're filling the top of the funnel, you're also driving category growth as well too. So you wanna be seeing that people are searching these long tail keywords and mm -hmm. hopefully you've got some content built up. So you wanna see that people are starting, more people are starting to come in through those pages that you're not sending paid traffic to, those pages, that shouldn't even be linked up to your homepage. They just happen to only show up if they're actually doing searches. And so you should be looking to see if there's a way for you in dashboards, and you should be able to do this easily to calculate your boss score, that brand search, organic, and SEO. 
and tabulate it on a daily basis. Because what you want to see is you want to see that trend go up. Because what you'll start to see is, is if you start to advertise on podcasts, you'll start to notice that the day that that podcast is dropped and some of the days thereafter, you'll see that overall boss score start to go up. And if it's a big enough of a hit, what'll happen is it'll go up and instead of it dropping all the way down, it'll, it'll actually stay at a level that was higher than the baseline before. And that's what you really want to see. And those are the types of campaigns that you want to keep running. If there's anything that raises your boss score, keeps it up there at an elevated level, you're like, hey, damn, that was good. Now, that can also happen with a Facebook campaign, especially when you change creative. Anything that's got eyeballs and got attention, if you're running any type of VSLs or anything like that in Facebook, we've seen amazing work with that. That raises that boss score. That's what you want to be focusing on. And, and that's the metric. And obviously you can get all of those uh, easily from Google Analytics as well. You just have to do a little bit of math. All right, everyone listening, go search Provalytics and help Jeff raise his boss score right now. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, time for a bit of a segue as we move to wrap up. This is a podcast about entrepreneurship. We've been talking about data, but one of the biggest hurdles that most successful entrepreneurs, most people face at one time or another is living a well-rounded life and doing the things that bring us joy with the people we care about most. So what does that look like for you, someone that's, as you said earlier, been your own boss for pretty much your whole life, except for that one year? <laughs> well, for me, it's, it's, it's a, mainly about taking care of myself because yeah. if you don't take care of yourself, you, you, can't, you can't be a good partner uh, to your family. You can't be a good partner to your customers. You're not going to be any good to anyone. And for me, taking care of myself is, is really about uh, what goes into my body, the fuel that I fill it. You have to eat well. Um, you can't drink as much as we think we can. Luckily for me, I didn't start drinking until I was 40. And as I've gotten older, I've started to cut down more and more. So you can't, you can't drink every night. You can't party. It's just going to catch up with you. Be everything in moderation, but you need to make certain that you're, you're eating well. You need to take time every day away from your desk to do something that's completely outside of what you're working on. I tend to read stuff, usually about an hour to an hour and a half a day to take my mind someplace else. Uh, and then also on top of that is exercise. You got to move your body. You know, one of the advantages of remote work is that we're at home, which is wonderful. But one of the, the downsides is that we're, we're sitting at our desk all day long. So you've got to eat well. You've got to go out and move. I tend to, I, I've fallen in love with Orange Theory. I just, I love Orange Theory Fitness. It's exercise for dummies. You just show up and it's a new thing every day. It's, it's, it's always the row, uh, a rowing machine. Uh, a treadmill and weights, and they they really kick you in your ass, and it's high intensity, and you get a a heart monitor. So it's all for me a data guy. It's all based upon trying to get your your heart rate to this orange zone, and it's it's so much fun. So I do that a couple times a week. So it's exercise, it's eating well, keeping your mind in good shape by doing other things, and most important that this all leads up to is sleep. You, you have to sleep at least eight to nine hours a night. 
I know it's in vogue for entrepreneurs to think I've got this whole thing where I sleep two hours and I'm up two hours or I don't need that much sleep. It used to be a, a great sign. But the reality is, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're solving problems all the time. And if you think that your solutions to these problems come by thinking real hard and by pushing through on them, you, then, then you don't know what you're doing because yeah. your problems come and the solutions come in the middle of sleep and awake, at least for me. And sometimes in my dreams. So I also have like a notebook where I, I'll wake up in the middle of the night when I have a dream and I write them all down because you never know when you're gonna, you're gonna be like, wow, wait a second. I had this idea and you'll go back a couple of weeks ago and you'll be like, this is incredible. I was thinking about this. Now it all makes sense. So eating well, exercising, taking your mind away from work and sleeping, those to me are the most important things. And if you can do all of that, then you're going to be a great partner to your family. You're going to be a, an incredible partner to your customers and, and life will be so much better for you. Oh my gosh. I couldn't agree more, especially on the sleep part. I've been talking to a lot of successful people lately, and it's been a recurring theme talking about having that journal by your bed where you wake up and you you put ideas to paper. I've had some of my biggest breakthroughs in my dreams where I've woken up and be like, oh my gosh, that was a great idea, or that was the problem, or that's the thing I need to say on this call tomorrow. So having that time to recharge and get your body and your mind where it needs to be to be at your A game. To me, I prescribe to that camp, not the two-hour sleep camp. And data is everything. I got a Garmin watch to track all my my fitness, but more importantly, my sleep, because I, re I realized that I wasn't getting enough and I wasn't really paying attention to the things that were impacting my sleep negatively. You know, drinking, even just a beer too late in the evening. Oh, the data doesn't lie, up. you know, yeah. one, one drink and your, your sleep score goes way down. It messes up your, your circadian rhythm and yeah. even cannabis as well can really mess up with that too. Yeah. One of the other things that, that really helped with sleep is that, you know, a number of years ago, my wife started the process of menopause, which is not what this podcast is about, but it leads no. to that. Yeah. And one of the things with menopause is that it's like all of a sudden, it feels like for her that there's like a, she feels like a thermonuclear re reactor. She gets these hot flashes and they usually come at night and it's the most ridiculous thing. So I started reading up and I found this thing called a chili pad, which is this mattress pad that has cool water go through it. So that was one of the original brands. We went through two of those. Then we used Sleep 8, yeah. which is another mattress pad. Uh, that we had some issues with, but now we, we've got one that we really like. We're on our, our fifth one. It's called the bed jet. And bed this jet. bed jet, and it's at the end of the bed and it pushes in cool air. It's like a fan and it hooks into the sheet and the sheet has like pinholes in it. And there's two sides so we can adjust the temperature and adjust the speed. And it's absolutely incredible. So having a cool oh environment for those of you out there that are listening, that are having problems sleeping. You want your bedroom to be like ice cold. It's the yeah. best way to keep you sleeping. Bed jet. Okay. I'm wow. looking that up today because right now here in Bend, Oregon, it's really smoky. The wildfires are pumping a lot of smoke our way. 
we usually have the windows wide open in the summer to let that cool air in. And the last few nights, we just haven't been sleeping as well because it's it's harder to make it cool upstairs, especially our room is tends to be the hottest room in the house. And so something like this could be (laughs) major game changer for us. You'll love it. Absolutely love it. Awesome. All right. Well, as we wrap up here, I have a choose your own adventure question for you that I always like to ask. So you can pick which one you'd like to answer or or both if you so desire. So number one is like, what's a favorite place you visited in the last five years or or any time? And second, maybe just a recent adventure that, that you went on locally in your own backyard. And in either case, what was it like? What made it so memorable? Favorite meal or drink you had? A lesson learned? Give us a story. So my favorite place has to be Aruba. And we had never been to Aruba a number of years ago, but wanted to go someplace during the Thanksgiving season that was outside of the hurricane belt that wasn't uh, too far away from us. And in the Boston area, it's like a four and a half hour direct flight. Easy. Uh, And I wanted to go to a place that there were no kids. I love kids, but on vacation, people tend to let you know, they let other parents parent their children. They because they're on vacation. It's so like, true. <laughs> I totally get it. But yeah. I don't. When I see a child running around and it appears unsafe, I just go right away into dad mode, and I've got to go protect that child. But when I'm on vacation, I don't want that. So we found this place uh, in Aruba called Bakuti. B U C U T I. It's only about a hundred rooms. Uh, it's in the. There's two sides two sections of the island. There's the high rises, which is where all the nightlife is. Mm-hmm. And then there's the low rises, which is very quiet. And this place is right on Eagle Beach. And it's now listed as like the most romantic resort in the Caribbean. Wow. Uh, they only allow couples. Uh, you can go there on your honeymoon, but you cannot have a wedding there because they don't want to disturb the other guest. Um, and it's absolutely incredible. They have like an amazing restaurant that's right there. Aruba's known for its food. But my wife and I, we go and we don't even leave the resort. We literally walk each day to an umbrella and then go to the bar, go back to the umbrella, go back to the bar, go back and forth. And yes, it's (laughs) absolutely incredible. But for us, when COVID hit, we were supposed to go there in May of 2020 for my birthday. So we had to cancel. We rescheduled till September. And then, you know, things weren't looking good. So we, we canceled. And then my wife's best friend was living in California, but she had a house here and she kept coming back and forth. And my wife was like, this is ridiculous. If she can travel cross country, we can go to Aruba because Aruba was requiring people to test before you even went into the country. So we went there in December of 2020. And when we got there, there was like nobody there out of that resort of a hundred, there were maybe 20 people. We loved it so much. We went back in March, we went back in May. We went back in September, and then we went back in December as well. So we kept going back because this amazing. resort kept everybody working. And it was just an absolutely amazing time. We just had an incredible, incredible time. But I, I can't recommend that resort well enough. And for us, it's all about the people that work there. The staff there are just absolutely incredible. They they remember you, and it's just just incredible. Shout out to Bakuti. I got to check that out. It sounds like a perfect place to get away with. And then to your second question for an adventure, a recent adventure that I just took that also has to do with people. And and because for me, it's always about the people wherever we go. We went to Las Vegas 
uh, for the 4th of July. Um, one of my good friends and old business partners is uh, Jamie Gold. He famously won the, the WSOP, the, the World Series of Poker Tournament in 2006. And so this is the first time he was playing in it in four years because of COVID. Asked us to come out and see him. And it had been a year since we had been to Vegas. And our favorite restaurant there in Vegas is this restaurant in the Bellagio called Michael Mina's. Just amazing, amazing seafood. Now, we had not been there in a year. And the year before we went, we sat at the bar. So we went back, showed up, sat at the bar, same bartender. She remembered what we had to drink, remembered no exactly way. what we ordered. I mean, this is Vegas. This is this is not like a local restaurant. This is a restaurant that is packed and, and, yeah. and sold out every night. And that that to me made the whole trip for us. Just because, you know, a lot of people don't recognize people that are in the service business, people that are in that business. They're in it because they love it. They love yeah. people. And for me, the fact that she remembered us and remembered everything about us, just absolutely incredible. That that to me That's made a, the whole trip. That is a craft. That's an art oh, form. Yeah. I mean, think about it. She probably served thousands of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She saw you. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. All right, Jeff. Well, do you have any ask or parting advice for people listening before we uh, close things out and I ask where people can find you online, socials, that kind of stuff? I give two pieces of parting advice. The first is I would recommend to everyone the best marketing book that's available out there today on Amazon is a book called Lemon, How the Advertising Brain Turned Sour by Orlando Wood. It's a couple of years old. It's 60 bucks on Amazon. It's, it's because it's got all these color photos yeah. and everything in there. But what it will do for marketers is you will understand what's going on in marketing. You'll also understand why large companies like Airbnb and many others who used to spend a lot of money in digital, all lower funnel, have now shifted their dollars to branding. This book explains how this shift towards that lower funnel has actually made uh, made advertising less effective because what ends up happening is our reach, the number of people we're attempting to message has gotten less. Again, that number, that, that reach is a number of how many impressions are in market, how many people we're attempting to reach. So this right here is an amazing, an amazing book. So that's my first tip. The second tip that I would recommend is that there is a drastic shift that we've talked about all throughout this podcast about what's going on in marketing, what's happening in marketing, and how anyone who's in it, who's used to dealing with data, is going to have a rude awakening because the way you've been doing things up to this point is, is about to change. And, it, and it's going to, you're going to see these changes occur over the next 18 to 24 months. In order for folks to be prepared for it, you have to understand all of those things. Now, a lot of them we've alluded to here, but at Probolytics, we've put in the work and have put together a certification course on attribution that we're in the process of releasing. It will be at attributioncertified.com. So folks can go there, sign up for it. We're offering it free of charge for anyone that wants to go through the certification process. It'll take 
maybe 45 minutes, but it lays out the process of what's going on in the industry. And we kind of see that as a way of, of helping folks that have been at this for a while, now all of a sudden feeling like that they've pulled the carpet out from underneath them. So those are my two tips at this point. All right. Well, I'm going to go get lemon. I had not heard of that. So thank you Great for the book. recommendation. Definitely need a good advertising book. And then any savvy marketers, anyone that considers themselves a savvy marketer or just wants to make sure that they're going to stay ahead in business, it's your duty to go to attributioncertified.com and take this. I know I will be. So Jeff, aside from checking those two resources out, where can people find and support you online, website, socials, things like that? Yeah, they can go to provalytics.com. They can also check me out as well at jeffgreenfield.com. Always love hearing from other entrepreneurs and uh, any folks that are in this space. I, I spend a lot of my time talking to my colleagues and even competitors. Uh, there's a lot of challenges in this space and uh, we're not solving all of them. We're just solving a few of them. So I'm a huge supporter of other companies in this space as well too and love to speak with them. Love it. But we'll put links to everything in the show notes for all of you listening and Jeff, thank you so much. I know I've learned a ton. I've got some homework to, to go tend to. Go to attributioncertified.com and just appreciate you coming on and sharing so much value. Thanks a lot, TJ. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. That was great. To all of our adventurous listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe, download, and share this on social media or with someone you know will get some value from it. Leaving a review goes a long way in helping people find the show. And I personally appreciate reading them when they come in. So please go drop one if you have the time. We'll see you all next week. And remember, whether we're talking about business or the things that bring us joy outside of work, life is meant for exploring. So go out there and live it one adventure at a time.